the return of the uh, right now called Magic Beans podcast with Sam Park and John Ramey. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey after a uh, an extended hiatus, but it's good to be back because a lot has happened during our hiatus. It certainly has. Now, Sam, I know you wanted to talk about Brazil. That's right. And I quickly realized why you wanted to talk about Brazil, because it's at the intersection of essentially the entire new paradigm of geopolitical understanding right now. Exactly. And it has been for quite some time. Right. Um, But of course, they had their January 6th moment in spirit, if not in, you know, real detail uh, on January 8th of this year. That's right. And, you know, a a dramatic change in leadership uh, at at the head of their government. Uh, Bolsonaro was a a Trumpy guy. And he was known as the Trump of the tropics. They, right. They said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Lulu, who has a Lula. much, excuse me, Lula, and a, who has a much longer name that I had written down, but I can't Luis find Luis Ignacio da de Silva. There we go. But he's L- almost universally known as Lula. Lula. I mean, Except for by me calling him Lulu. Lula. Uh, now, he is a, a return to the presidency. Um, this is his second stint as president. That's right. And. Uh, before we go any further, I think uh, one thing that's always important to mention about Brazil, uh, just in general terms, is that it's only in 1986, I believe it was, or about that time, that they made the transition from military military dictatorship, which they've had for decades, to electoral democracy. So that's still comparatively recently. And in that time, uh, Lula first became president in 2002. Uh, so that's only, you know, 15, 16 years after they became a democracy. And since the fall of the military dictatorship, Lula was almost certainly the single most popular p- uh, politician in Brazil. Which is why it's all the more outrageous to many that he served uh, time in prison during Bolsonaro's tenure. Correct. Now, uh, just for some background, uh, Lula started out as a welder uh, and then became a union leader and then essentially founded his political party, which is the PT, which of uh, the Portuguese acronym for the Workers Party. Uh, and so he's uh, certainly the most left leaning Brazilian leader in the nation's history. And uh at the same time, he wasn't like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela next door. So I actually read that in Brazil, they don't use the term, uh, I believe, liberal or whatever the Portuguese equivalent would be, because that has negative connotations because of previous military dictatorships. So not just that, he but uses a social it's it's socialist and it's yes. it's workers, but they don't say liberal. But yeah, for instance, though, uh, Chavez also called himself a socialist, even though there are very different kinds of leaders. Liberal anywhere outside the United States, for that matter, generally means free market. Uh, and that's it's more of an economic policy term than a political. Excuse me, I said military dictatorship. That's incorrect. It, it's it's because it's viewed in alignment with neo uh, neoliberal and kind of uh, exploitative Towards the global south, yeah, sort of uh, capitalist, fil- uh, you know, right. uh, generally capitalist economic policies, and that's what m- most people around the world think of when they hear the word liberal, not just in in Brazil. Uh, so Lula uh, generally pursued 
liberal economic policies. That is, he, he kept the markets open. He didn't clamp down on, on uh, businesses or anything like that. His economic team was very well regarded internationally by practitioners of the neoliberal consensus, which is a dirty word in some circles. <laughs> and so uh, Brazil became um, very prosperous under Lula's presidency for many reasons. He was helped out by a global boom over a number of years in commodity prices. And Brazil is an enormous producer of commodities, not just uh, uh, copper, for instance, uh, but agricultural commodities like beef and soybeans and things like this. And this coincided uh, with the ongoing rise of China, who buys all of Brazil's commodities in enormous quantities. And I think that they've for a long time now been Brazil's largest trading partner. So uh, that really helped Lula out a lot. Poverty fell dramatically during his presidency, not just because of increased trade, though, but uh, Lula also uh, instituted a series of social welfare programs, the flagship of which was called uh, Bolsa Família, which is Portuguese for family payment. And it's an elegantly and in fact, almost absurdly simple program by which poor families would be given, I believe it was a monthly cash payment as long as their children remained in school on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, this was an enormous help uh, because uh, for a number of reasons, it, it one might think, for example, that a, a better educated child uh, might not need the payment when they become a parent, right? They might end up coming, moving up the economic ladder and not need the sort of welfare. But on top of that, uh, a child that's in school is less likely to fall victim to something like child labor uh, or especially gang activity, which is an enormous problem in Brazilian cities. So uh, it, this is a uh, just an enormously effective program. Now, many development econ economists who generally subscribe to the neoliberal consensus will say, well, if you institute these free trade and free market policies, then, you know, you'll increase prosperity in your country. And that's certainly true. Right. But it also helps if you do things like provide better education for your uh, children in your society. So Lula left office in 2010 with such high approval ratings that he was able to usher in his handpicked successor, Dilma Rousseff. Uh, and that's when things started to go bad. Uh, he, uh, that is uh, Dilma Rousseff, uh, his successor, uh, presided over a period of slower economic, uh, in co coincident with the global slowdown. The Great Recession. It. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, she was able to win re-election uh, in 2014. But it was after that that she became, and the entire Brazilian government, in fact, became embroiled in what was called the Lava Jato scandal or car wash. Uh, and this that was actually the uh, Brazilian 
variant and probably the largest segment of what was called the Odebrecht scandal, in which a an enormous construction conglomerate, Odebrecht, was the name of the company, uh, headquartered in Brazil. It turned out that they were handing out truckloads of bribe money to politicians all over Latin America. This was the biggest scandal in Latin America in recent years. And it and it touched the Workers' Party as well as every other party in Brazil, or of any size, that is. And so this uh, caused Dilma Rousseff to be impeached and removed from office. Uh, I believe that was in 2016. And so there was a caretaker president, Michel Temer, who uh, was from one of the mainstream traditional Brazilian parties. Uh, he remained president for the next couple of years, and then Bolsonaro was in the, was elected. This was especially bad for uh, the Workers' Party because since they'd never been in power before Lula first came to office, uh, he assured Brazilians that they wouldn't be uh, taking part in the systemic corruption that had plagued Brazil forever. But it turned out that they were just as susceptible to it. I should point out also that uh, as far as people could tell, Lula's own only personal involvement in the Lava Jato scandal was that he seemed to have been given an apartment. Uh, but there's little to no evidence that he ever actually lived there. However, uh, he was only freed from prison because his conviction was overturned on, a, I believe, a jurisdictional technicality. So that's not the same as clearing him. Right. Um, so that brought, brought Bol, essentially brought Bolsonaro to power. And Bolsonaro comes to power in 2019 after the caretaker, President uh, Tamer. And Bolsonaro, as you said, is the Trump of the tropics. And he's, um, I mean, is he just a garden variety populist like we have seen? Well, he's very much like Trump. He's rabidly misogynistic and anti-gay, for instance. Uh, right. I would say he's more anti-gay than Trump, sure. for that matter. Uh, he also, unlike Trump, however, did serve in the military. I think he rose to the level of captain. Uh, and he had many nice things, nice things to say about the Brazilian military dictatorship of his youth. Uh, and so that was alarming to many people, right. uh, as as was his complete and explicit uh, uh, violation of existing Brazilian laws against clear cutting the Amazon, which was one of the most concerning aspects of uh, his presidency, was that he would just let people chop down trees like there was no tomorrow, which there might not have been had this gone on much longer. That's another reason, uh, frankly, why I think... Brazil is always an important country to talk about because they ha have by far the largest part of the Amazon rainforest. And so if they're going to keep chopping it down, which Lula is going to stop, he says, uh, if they're going to keep chopping it down, then there's no hope for addressing the climate crisis. And Bolsonaro is Trump-like in that he denies that he loses this most recent election to Lula. Yes. Ironically, if anything, the Latin American president seemed a less committed authoritarian than the North American president, Donald Trump. Lula, uh, I'm sorry, Bolsonaro uh, 
said he would accept the result of the election, but never said that it was a legitimate election. Right. Unlike Trump, who said over and over again, this was rigged. I was robbed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And Trump said, please come to Washington on this date. And then later spelled out the purpose for why people were coming to Washington. We need to pressure Pence. We need to pressure the Republicans in Congress, et cetera. Bolsonaro Bolsonaro did not do that. Yeah. Uh, His, um, however, more alarmingly, his supporters basically just did it on their own. Yeah. Neither Lula nor Bolsonaro were in the capital, Brasilia, when this happened. In fact, Bolsonaro wasn't even in the country. He was in Florida, he, wasn't he? He was in Florida. And that's uh, where he still is, perfectly. Exactly. Unlike Trump, who wanted to actually lead the crowd of protesters he knew to be armed to the Capitol himself, according to witness testimony given to the January 6th committee. So, uh, if anything, Bolsonaro seemed to be sort of wishy-washy, right? He didn't actively foment a specific plan for a coup, unlike Donald Trump. Well, I think, and this is just me speculating, but that might be because Bolsonaro has actually been in the military and understands the consequences of that perhaps more uh, more deeply or more yeah. thoroughly. That's an excellent point. I think that might very, you might very well have something. I mean, well, just, we, yeah. We might find out. As far as I know, Bolsonaro is still in Florida and the United States doesn't have an explicit extradition treaty with Brazil. Uh, For that matter, I think just for right now, the Brazilians might just assume that he remain in Florida until they want him. Sure. Until such time as, you know, they have a case. No need to have him down there, you know, rabble rousing or whatever. Exactly. They can, you know, just, you know, revoke his passport, I guess, uh, 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 extraterritorially. And so make sure that he can't leave, can't go anyplace else. Right. Or at least try to prevent it from going someplace else. So this happens on January 8th. Uh, there's a riot. They charge. They, you know, storm Congress. They do stuff. The they, presidential palace. They but, stormed all three branches of yeah, government. Actually. Right. They stormed the courts, the Congress and the, and the presidential palace. That's and just as an aside, you know, if you're not if you're at all into architecture, Google mm-hmm. Brasilia because it's all mid-century and it's tremendous so it's lovely yeah oh it's so good you know their white house isn't from the 18th century it's from 1960 or whenever it's yeah, from. it's so cool so the riot happens but it doesn't change anything lula's president that's right and uh but however lula only won the the election by less than two points it was extraordinarily close uh, and so he doesn't come into office today with the same sort of goodwill that he sported back when he was president before. It'll be much more difficult for him. But he, I think he's coming to Washington later this year. Uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, the German chancellor, visited him last week. And uh, so he's now having to meet all these world leaders that weren't in office the last time that he was in office. So this is interesting to me because, you know, we're like, great, uh, Lula is not a populist, doesn't want to chop down the rainforest, seems to be somebody who has risen through the ranks of working people, generally, I guess, is open-minded, progressive folks like you and I are. This this guy is, is good. It's better. Upgrade. Yeah. But, like, Olaf Scholz comes to town and basically tries to get him on side 
in the you know the the world uh, anti-authoritarian struggle. That's right, like yeah. hey, Russia has invaded Ukraine, and Lula is pretty lukewarm. He says it's a mistake that Russia invaded, but he won't condemn it. That's right. And the Schultz, in fact, asked him to provide ammunition for yeah. some of the Western arm armaments being shipped to Ukraine, and Lula said no. On top of that, he also said that he thought China should moderate the peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. Now, John, do you think that's a good idea? I do not. Okay, I don't either. I don't think Olaf Schultz thought it was a good idea. I don't think Joe Biden or Volodymyr Zelensky would think that's a good idea. I don't even know if Xi Jinping would right. even want to do that. That's a great right? point. And in fact, I'm not even sure that Lula himself thinks it's a good idea. Is that because he just wanted to to um, butter up his big trading partner? It's for a number of reasons. I think that's one of them. Uh, it's just that he felt he had to say this. And the point I would like to make about this is that even though we haven't heard about it for some time, the BRICS group of nations is alive and well. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with this, BRIC, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, was an acronym first made up by an economist at Goldman Sachs in about 2001 uh, as a sort of shorthand for good investment destinations. These are enormous economies that are enormous countries. Yes. And uh, that are growing rapidly and have more room to grow and that have generally rather open capital accounts, not completely, but they're open. You know, you can invest there. And uh, and then later, South Africa was added. Uh, and so it's, it's B-R-I-C-S, S for South Africa. And so uh, interestingly, it wasn't until 2009 that all of these countries said amongst themselves, you know what? And this is, mind you, right after the financial crisis, where sort of Western economies were sort of on pause, right? Uh, they said, you know what? We might as well at least try to coordinate our policies around capital flow, right? Because otherwise, Western we'll be exploited. Yeah, well, Western investors will just pair us off, you know, the, sort of play us off against each other. Right, right. Uh, and so they did that, and they've had annual summits ever since then. Maybe they skipped one or two during the pandemic, but they had one last year, for example. Uh, and so it seems that this grouping is alive and well, and that's why I sent you the story about Putin visiting South Africa, right? And they're going to be conducting joint naval exercises along with China, around the waters of South Africa. Uh, now, all of the country, apart from Russia, of course, all of the BRICS countries are supposedly neutral in the war of Ukraine. Right. Uh, however, in like India's president has kind of spoken out against it. Yes, but the India is still buying. Sure. Huge quantities of oil. They're, they're probably right up there with China in the amount of energy resources they're buying from Russia. So they're Unlike, essentially floating the Russian economy as they're yes, sanctioned. You know, but but Modi comes and wags his finger at Putin, right. but he's not actually trying to apply any of the sanctions that Western companies or Western countries are applying to Russia. So 
again, even though you, you don't hear about the BRICS a lot, it's still around, right? Uh, and I thought it was very interesting when Zelensky addressed the joint session of Congress back in December. He said, sort of in passing, and it wasn't widely remarked upon at all, but he made a point of saying, no country, including countries in the global south, I'm, uh, and he used the term mm-hmm. global south, mm-hmm. uh, should have to be victims of war. And this, I think, is the rub, right, is that Putin himself is promulgating a narrative that Russia is standing for the downtrodden nations of the earth. Now, it's crap, okay? It's it's not to be taken seriously, but he is sort of pushing on an open door, right? The Probably the majority of people in the world don't really care about the war in Ukraine. Right, and and they got plenty of gripes with the West and, and the countries in NATO, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, boo-hoo, white people yeah. are having a war? Gosh, yeah. what, how terrible that must be. For Man, you, yeah. Right? Uh, and so, you know, we could say, well, this is different, and, you know, sovereignty, et cetera. You know, uh, but uh, it, it, this is a message that doesn't find a ready audience in many parts of the world. Now, I'm confident that Western policymakers are well aware of this, right? But they can't really come, uh, come right out and say it. Right. They don't want to alienate any of these countries any further. But it is a problem that we're going to need to keep in mind as the year goes forward. I mean, the Russian offensive in Ukraine might be starting right now. And I or and if it hasn't, it's going to it could start any minute. They're going to really start ramping up. So, uh, again, this is just something to keep in mind. So you wanted to talk about Brazil, but of course, Brazil becomes about Lula and Scholz and what they will and will not do in the struggle to contain belligerent Russia. You mentioned the South African Russia joint naval exercise, which apparently has happened before. And I guess we sure. just yeah. we weren't as cognizant here in the United States about belligerent Russia. It wasn't alarming yet. And, you know, the president of South Africa is uh, a member of Nelson Mandela's party. Yes, that's the only party that's been in power since since the fall of apartheid. Which I understand, and obviously that there's a lot of inner workings to South African politics that you know I'm ignorant towards. But like just the symbolism of that, I'm like, wait, this guy's from Nelson Mandela's party, and he's playing ball with the Russians. Well, you know? Okay, but but now keep I in mind understand that- why. But the, the, the ANC, even b- before the fall of apartheid, was essentially a, cl- a Soviet client organization. This right. shouldn't be that surprising. I guess, right? but I, in a good guy, bad guy sense, it is. I guess, but, uh, you know, the, the things don't. Were the Soviets on side with apartheid before the West? Were they like, were they? No, they were anti-apartheid. I mean, that's right? what I mean. They were they were on the correct side of that. Yeah. Before oh, prior to the West, certainly. I yeah, mean, that they, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and so. Uh, this before is, my time, Sam. I, I can. I, I'm allowed that one. Right, but this is part of the the general uh, projection of Russian power around the world, which we, you know, for instance, there's still Syria and things like this. I remember uh, a month ago when uh, they announced that the Leopard tanks would be going to Ukraine from Germany, and everybody was wagging their finger at Germany. Oh, why aren't you doing more to help, etc. For some reason, uh, nobody. 
was asking France why they weren't doing more to help, even though France has a much larger and more combat-capable military than Germany does. Uh, and you'll notice that that uh, Zelensky, after uh, stopping in London, went directly to Paris, where he met with both Schultz and Macron. Uh, and he had gotten Rishi Sunak in Britain to say that they would provide training for for on for Ukrainian pilots on uh, NATO ready fighter jets. But they won't Which, provide the jets. Well, not yet, right? Yeah. I think this is by now we know the drill and that uh, uh, the you know the jets will be coming at some point. But France. Uh, just recently in the past couple of months has been asked to abandon the anti-terrorism operations they've been uh, mounting for years in parts of Western North Africa against an Al-Qaeda affiliate, which is a very dangerous organization. Uh, and, and France so has been touched by terrorism. Yes, and, and they've, to their credit, have been spearheading the Western anti-terror effort in this region. Uh, and but the first the government of Mali and then a couple of weeks ago the government of Burkina Faso have asked them to leave uh, and they're going to hand off these operations to the Wagner Group, uh, the Russian mercenary outfit that is taking part in the in the siege of Bakhmut in Ukraine right now. Who's handing them off? The French or the lo- the governments of the Mali? Governments, the, yeah. the governments of Mali and Burkina Faso. Uh, so this is again additional projection of Russian power throughout the developing world. That's not uh, that is disconcerting. It is, uh, but again, uh, you know these gov- people in in Mali, they're like, well, you know, these people aren't doing a good job, and they have all these concerns about human rights that might tie their hands in terms of their military, uh, their willingness to engage in very ruthless military activity, and we just want these people gone. Yeah, and uh, we know the Russians will have no scruples. Exactly, or they don't think they will. But at the same time, if I was the government of Burkina Faso, who is the most recent government to do this, I would I would think to myself, how many people can the Wagner Group actually keep getting their hands on? They seem like right, they're, they're of, a bit busy. Yeah, they seem to have a lot going on right now. Can they really get enough more people to help us out? It just it seems it might be a bit short sighted, but. I'm not an African uh, government official, so what do I know? It is interesting that you know nearly every story we might want to talk about right now is either, and, and obviously there's some of this, you know, one year anniversary coming up on what the 24th of February. That's right. Yes, one year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it does seem like nearly every single story in international news is one way or another about this war yes even the china stuff right uh it was uh julia yaffe who made the point um i think on uh amanpour and company how uh the biden has an ally in mitch mcconnell for wanting to keep uh aid to ukraine and she she pointed out that it's still the mainstream position of both you know major parties in the united states that's right I mean, you can't say that about a lot of things in this country. And That's it- true. However, actual public support for uh, aiding Ukraine has been falling. Not, well, that's stupid. Not precipitously, 
but uh, noticeably. Uh, and so this makes it, I think, all that, like like uh, Julia Yaffe said, right? This is why it's actually important that we speed up delivery of weapons to Ukraine while we still have the public the political, support right. to do so. And uh, so, yes. Sam, uh, this war is not ending anytime soon. That's right. And uh, uh, but the sooner it can end, the better because of the partly because of this developing narrative of the West versus the rest. Right. Uh, and that's something that, you know, is probably manageable for some time to come, but not forever. Not forever. That's a great point. Do you think the Western resolve to help Ukraine is disincentivizing the Chinese and their ambitions for Taiwan? Or do you think the Chinese are smart enough to know not to invade Taiwan anyway? Well, as we've discussed before, I don't really have any way of knowing, right? I, I, I would imagine just considering that China has a fair amount of problems already right now that they would want to put this on the back burner. Right. Uh, but uh, Xi Jinping himself <clears throat> had uh, sort of drew a rough date of 2027, right, for, you know, what, by the, the time by which you would like to see Taiwan uh, uh, reintegrated with the mainland. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to get, get there, right? Uh, but... You know, it's not something we can cross off, certainly. Right. Sure. I think it's less. Uh, but again, this only makes it more important that Ukraine should be seen to win. Uh, that would provide the greatest disincentive uh, to China in terms of trying to take back Taiwan, I would think. Uh, but in terms of what Xi Jinping himself is thinking, I have no idea. I actually often wonder if some ambitious younger members of the Chinese Communist Party might be looking at Xi Jinping right now and saying, this is as vulnerable as he's been during his time in office. And okay, fine, he's got a third term, but that doesn't mean he should necessarily have a fourth one. I have no idea if this is actually happening. Sure, It's just that if I were one of these people, I might be at least thinking along these lines. I get, it's just mind blowing to me. You know, we had this, we have, and are still experiencing the, the, uh, the effects of a global pandemic that has killed several million people, and, you know, as kind of history minded folks, I thought, okay, well, this will be the defining thing for the next several years, and in fact, no, it's this war, right? Right. I mean, the pandemic is certainly <laughs> of historic importance, but. The, the Russian invasion has now, I mean, it, it's like a, an instant resorting of this new kind of Cold War, new Iron Curtain. Um, it's just instantaneous. Yes, and it's dramatic. And, and uh, you know, we've touched upon some of the broad currents uh, that uh, that it's sort of set in motion, right? And, but it's, I, you know, I think it would be foolhardy to speculate exactly how those currents are going to wash over the earth. Uh, and right. because it'll take a very long time. Okay. Can we talk balloon? I read something today, Reuters. And obviously you and I both think this balloon story is, 
I was, I was, I was going to say full of hot air. Um, no, it, it's being overreported. It's, I mean, it's, it's everything that we, it's everything we don't like about the media. And we say, and I, we say that as participating members, I suppose, but, um, it's not that important, but of course it's a balloon and people can react to it and they can see it. Here's the thing that absolutely scared the living hell out of me. I read today, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin called China on the hotline to yeah, discuss the balloon. You have reached an automated one. They didn't pick didn't up. Yeah, yeah. They didn't pick up. Yeah. Now, I'm I'm like, guys. The crustiest hardliner, bushy eyebrowed, vodka for breakfast, like Soviet, you know, uh, defense ministers answered the hotline. Yeah. Okay, like, but but why did they not pick up the phone? Right? Was it to give Austin the finger? I or, don't care. I mean, no, but the thing is that's a basic violation of like our common humanity. But it might just be that they were embarrassed. I mean, uh, because this is just stupid. Be embarrassed. Don't have a nuclear war. Okay, look, they're not going to have a nuclear war. And that's, you know, this is this is just absurd. Okay, I'm Uh, just like, you got to answer the hotline, man. Now, uh, like I thought the the, uh, Pentagon officials who testified in front of Congress about this yesterday did a very good job. And they danced right up to the edge of saying what's really going on here, which is, hey, guess what? Grandstanding congressperson. Uh, countries spy on each other every All the time. day. Yeah. And the reason they do that is because they find out stuff that way. And they find out stuff every day. And we find out stuff about them, right? We're going to shoot down every single thing. It's just like, no. so, you know, instantly, why should the Chinese not then shoot down one of our spy planes that? Routinely traverse Chinese airspace. Yeah. Just what's wrong with you? Right. Uh, And so that's to me is uh, this is such a non story, right? This is it's literally dog bites man, right? This happens all (laughs) All the the time. Uh, And the idea that it should be this, you know, big, great, big kerfluffle, uh, uh, it's just ridiculous. I think, you know, one. uh, So I shouldn't worry about the hotline going unanswered. I, look, that's not my favorite thing, right? Uh, but uh, honestly, uh, I think it was David Ignatius in the Washington Post who's been, uh, he's an August gray eminence of foreign policy commentary, right? He said, look, this is an intelligence win for America, right? We're getting stuff that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Right. And I don't, look, I don't know what happened, okay? But one thing that could have, for instance, we know that generally these Chinese balloons fly much higher in the air. But for some reason, this one dropped down to 60,000 feet so that people could see it, right? Uh, this might have just been a blunder or an totally. accident, yeah. right? Uh, just like, oh, crap, we lost control of this thing. And now it's been shot down and the Americans can look at all our hardware. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened. But it easily it's could plausible. have been. It's totally right? plausible. It makes honestly, I think it's a better explanation than a lot of other things that we might have heard about. Uh, now, again, maybe that's not what happened. But the idea that it's some horrible new threat that that uh, that we have to worry about, I, I'm sorry, it's absurd. It's absurd. That's all I had. Well, I guess I guess we'll know more about the earthquake next week. 
Um, yeah, it's horrible. Syrian Turkey. Uh, what is it? Twenty two thousand dead. dead. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, there's no end in sight for that. Uh, and I, what I've read is that the UN is getting has been approved by the uh, Assad government to go to rebel held areas. Yeah, but that but like Assad's government's kind of slow walking the details on how to do that. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, uh, but I think, you know, look, it's there's no good outcome here. It's just terrible. And it's cold. Yeah. And in a couple of weeks, uh, there'll be elections in Nigeria. That's mm. something to, to to keep an eye on. Also, just as Brazil is the most important country in, in South America, Nigeria is the most important country in at least sub-Saharan Africa, if not the whole continent. Right? Now, Sam, uh, I know that you're uh, a huge sports fan, so I will point out to you that uh, as I prepare for Fresno State at Nevada tonight, there is a uh, a Nigerian player on the Fresno State roster well i mean there's many nigerians yeah. uh that have immigrated to the united states for a number of years now i see uh, a lot of nigerian uh players on uh college basketball rosters yeah and, and some of them actually are are not even nigerian they just it's their parents are right they were born here to nigerian born parents uh and they you know they speak perfectly good english just like any other uh so when you if you see a a player's name that you think that they're Nigerian, they may not, in fact, be right. Nigerian. They might actually be Americans. It's funny. Uh, Fresno State has a an Angolan, somebody from Sao Paulo, and also a Nigerian. I thought it was... I just happened to be working on that before our conversation. No, oh, good. You know, I mean, uh, that's one of the great things about America. We take all time. <laughs>